everyone. I'm your host, Tom Shaughnessy, and welcome back to Chain Reaction, a research-driven podcast that's a part of Delphi Digital. If you're not on Delphi's research portal, you're missing out on the critical analysis read by the top minds in the crypto space, so be sure to check it out. One quick housekeeping item, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. I may personally hold tokens mentioned on the podcast, and you can view our show notes below for our complete disclosures. With that out of the way, I wanted to give a quick shout out to our wonderful sponsor, eToro. The best way to be smart about trading crypto is to use the smartest trading platform. eToro is one of the largest trading platforms in the world, with over $1 trillion in trading volume on the platform per year. U.S. customers can trade the most popular crypto assets with extraordinarily low fees. And if you're not ready to trade yet, you can practice on the platform with their virtual trading feature. Best of all, you can connect with 11 million other eToro traders around the world to discuss trading, charts, and all things crypto. You can create an account at b.tc slash eToro reaction or click the link below in your show notes. Just scroll down on your phone, click the eToro link, and it'll bring you right to their website. Hey guys, I also wanted to tell you about how tokenized real estate is here. Realty is the first platform for tokenizing real estate on Ethereum. Realty fractionalizes real estate into affordable tokens on Ethereum which means that you no longer have to have a significant net worth to invest directly in real estate properties. Realty properties start at just $63, and properties on Realty are curated by their team of real estate experts. If you are not a U.S. citizen, visit realty.co, that's R-E-A-L-T dot C-O, to sign up now. Browse the marketplace to view properties that are tokenized on Ethereum today. With that, let's jump into the episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to have on Danny Ryan, who's a researcher at the Ethereum Foundation. Danny, how's it going? Great. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Danny, I'm sure you're probably you know the busiest you've ever been. Is that is that suffice to say? <laughs> you know, there's a lot to do. There's a lot going on. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, I mean, let's jump right into it. I mean, there's a lot going on with Ethereum. It seems like everything's kind of coming to a head with your new, you know, the new shard design proposal that's going out. And I definitely have a lot of questions for myself and the community. So we could, we can kind of dive in with an overview. I mean, what's the TLDR on the new sharding proposal? Is it, I mean, everybody's kind of aware that the shard count went down, but I guess if you could just walk through like the overview yeah, yeah. on what it is. So essentially, in the previous proposal, um, the asynchronous communication between shards happened once every epoch, which is about every six minutes. Um, and the more that we thought about this, the more we talked about developers, the more that we considered some of the challenges that emerge in the developer experience around uh, transfers and things, um, it just became more and more apparent that if we can find a better design um, that can facilitate better communication, that it, it would likely be worthwhile. Um, and so this new proposal has a reduction in shards, but has a um, has facilitates cross-shard communication every slot instead of every epoch. Um, and so all shards can communicate every slot. So essentially all shards are cross-linked into the beacon chain at each slot so that at the next slot, all shards become aware of uh, the state root of each other uh, so they can make proofs about communications. Um, and this, this 
eliminates a lot of the complexity of dealing with uh, transaction fee markets and some of the user experience issues that we were concerned about and some of the more like crazy layer two methods we were thinking about and like in terms of like optimistic state routes and all sorts of stuff that like was possible um, but was just going to be complicated and take a lot of effort to standardize and 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 get applications doing doing things better so what this does is uh, it facilitates that, that communication every slot, but because the communication happens every slot, um, we can't have as many shards because of the amount of load that they, each of these uh, crosslinks uh, exhibits upon the beacon chain. Um, and so the, the beacon chain load has to be bounded um, and 1,024 shards cross-linked at every slot uh, would put too much load on the beacon chain uh, because of all the signature processing and, and and so instead, we've done a, a reduction in that uh, the shard count from 1,024 to 64. Um, but to counteract some of the loss in scalability there, uh, we've uh, targeted a, the, the new shard block size is 16, eight times larger, I believe. I think 128 kilobytes. Um, and this is because of some, some research that was recently done by, uh, led by Starkware, um, testing larger blocks and block propagation and uncle rates on the existing Ethereum network. Um, and it looks like safe block sizes could be much larger uh, than they currently are. And so using that, uh, we're going to have larger blocks, fewer shards. So we end up with a similar order of magnitude for data availability. We're still somewhere between like one and three megabytes per second of data availability on the system, um, but with a reduction of the actual, the amount of chains. Um, so it's like 64 chains in parallel uh, instead of 1,024. The nice thing is, although there's, there'd be a reduction in the amount of like on-chain computation that can happen because it's essentially 64X what we have today, um, we still get like massive gains in data availability. And some of the new layer two constructions like optimistic uh, OVM, I think that's optimistic virtual machine and uh, zk rollup. They they rely upon data availability and the, and the bound on their scalability is based upon like how much data is available to the chain. Um, and so coupling the sharding proposal with some of these like very promising uh, constructions that I actually expect to see out next year, um, we can still have like massive massive gains in scalability. It's a great, concise update, Danny. I love that. And, you know, this might be a naive question, but it seems like some in the Ethereum community went down some really deep, you know, magical technical rabbit holes to, you know, hope to achieve scale and, you know, on ETH2. And it seems like this is like not a simple fix, but it seems like this is just a simpler architecture. I mean, did this ever come up before as an idea or I'm just wondering because it seems like this is just yeah. simple. You know, I was I was thinking about that before this call, um, and I was like, "Why did we not consider this earlier?" And some of that just it, one comes from because we want wanted to target a massive scalability. Um, you know, that thousand x is much much more than a sixty four x, and so uh, operating under those bounds, I think we just had made certain concessions early on about how how often communications could happen and things. Um, but one of the, I think 
more and more as we, we brought more developers into the conversation um, and users into the conversation, there was much concern about uh, the latency between cross-shard communication and kind of like isolating applications between shards. Um, so that became more and more pressing. And again, these these layer two constructions that like utilize on-chain data availability um, have they're they're relatively new. Um, I'd say in the past like six months, that's been like the, one of the new avenues that's being explored in layer two. So you know, meet, trying to meet the the needs of the community um, to have a better user experience, and coupled with this this other technological breakthrough that we think is going to pair really well with um, with sharding, um, it, it became more and more of an obvious. Uh, avenue to explore and, but again it's it's one of those things it's like you know the 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 wheel is simple once you know about it um and sometimes it just takes some discovery like a lot of a lot of this process like it is it's an engineering project uh certainly we have many like great engineering teams building this thing uh but it's also a research project and, and the the research process is um it's kind of like sailing you're trying to get somewhere, but you can't really go in a straight line. Uh, you end up kind of like veering to the left and then heading west and east. And like eventually, if you follow the winds, like you, you get to where you're going, uh, but but you can't really follow a straight path. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, just thinking about the architecture now, Victor Boone and a friend at Bison Trails had a question for you. I mean, did you guys look at near protocol sharding design? I mean, they've made a lot of headway. I'm just wondering if you guys ever looked into that or, or if you guys thought about implementing something similar or if this new architecture is somewhat similar. Yeah. So for a while, our impression was, you know, near was essentially use, use, using a lot of our research um, to build their protocol. But at some point um, in the past eight months, we've, we've certainly, you know, they've, been solving problems in a slightly different way than we've been solving problems. And, and we've, we've diverged, our designs have diverged. Um, and it's not something that we had particularly been keeping up with. Uh, but it does turn out that this, uh, this mode of communication between shards is, is actually very similar to theirs. Um, and so although we did not get it by, um, digging into their research, uh, we have come to a similar design, uh, through our own means, which is pretty interesting. Um, and I suppose val validating in a sense. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I definitely agree there. I mean, the other question for you is, you know, when you guys are going through the thought process, how long did it take for you guys to decide on this new shard architecture? Like, was this something that was, you know, a weekend revelation or is this something that was months in the process or years in the process? I'm just wondering like how this all came to a head. So it's, it was a weekend revelation followed by a few weeks of debate. Um, and I, I've uh, kind of anchored myself in the team on a little bit more conservative side, uh, just because I interface with uh, the client teams a lot more and, and I kind of straddle the research and engineering. Um, so I, I'm much more of the like, you know, it's, it's frozen. Like, I don't want to, like, we can't change these, like we have to just get this thing out. Um, whereas like some members of the team are, are much more of the like, well, can we make it better? Can we make it better? Can we do this? Can we do that? Um, and so after the weekend revelation, it was, it was a, a few weeks of fleshing out the proposal, discussing the trade-offs, discussing how it might affect our development process, um, and trying to balance everything. 
And for me, um, I kind of, at the beginning, I saw two avenues. One was to ship phase zero as it already was. Um, and, and ultimately have to change a lot of things when come phase one, uh, and have to deal with legacy code and things or to delay everything, figure out this whole sharding, new sharding proposal, um, and go from there. Both of these avenues were, I, I did not, I did not want to take. Um, and then I woke up one morning and thought, oh, okay. So what we can do instead is take phase zero, subtract a few features from it, uh, specifically kind of the infrastructure, the scaffolding for the shards, um, the cross-linking infrastructure. Um, just subtract that out, do a quick release uh, without those features, um, and keep phase zero essentially just moving moving along. And that'll buy us time to really flesh out the new proposal um, and, and the new direction. And, and the nice thing about that is even if in a month uh, we have we decide this new proposal, you know, it, it doesn't work, which I don't think that's what's going to happen. But even if we, we decide that, uh, we don't have any lock-in on the phase zero anymore on, on that implies what this proposal must facilitate. Um, and so we've, we've essentially bought ourselves some time to really like take the time and iron these things out, but at the same time, uh, keep phase zero moving towards production. And so I think once I had that revelation and once we had kind of like dug into the proposal, Vitalik flushed it out with his document. Um, about that time we hit, we hit DevCon, uh, which, you know, like, there's lots of good talks and like parties and lots of fun stuff, but like really like for a lot of us, it's, we just have super intense conversations for days and days. Um, and so we, we talked about this proposal with uh, client teams, with phase two researchers, like the quilt team and the, and the EWASM team um, and talked to a lot of users. You know, a lot of users are really concerned about composability and about user experience of sharding. And, and it just, by the end of DevCon, we were like, pretty certain this was the route and, and, and had made the decision, but it, it was, it was a few weeks to, to digest and, and, uh, to go from there. That's awesome. Yeah. I saw a picture somebody posted of you. It looked like you were on a patio explaining something by like a lake. It might've been Hudson that shared it. I'm like, all right, this is the revelation phase. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. I was, I, I, I'm always explaining something. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And you know, just Let's um let's go through some questions that a lot of people have. Um, I got a bunch from people. We can kind of go through it as it relates to the architecture and, and things like that. So one interesting one was from Jonathan Marcus and Ryan Sean Adams, and I feel like a lot of people have a similar question. What's the state of the bridge or the bidirectional ETH one to ETH two transfers? What is that looking like? Right. So this is something that um, for a long time we've been pretty resistant to. Uh, we, I, I mean, the the research team. There's many of the community that have been very adamant that this is something that they want, um, and the reason we've been resistant to opening up this bidirectional bridge is because it really it, um, it kind of encumbers both systems, um, the existing Ethereum chain and the new sharded universe. Uh, it encumbers the, the development process and the release process and the security profile um, in that. This new system, which at the beginning is, is much has a much higher risk profile uh, than the existing Ethereum chain, um, the sooner that you kind of tie them together, the sooner that if something goes wrong in one, uh, it's going to affect the other. Um, and so we've been resistant to um, essentially tightly coupling the consensus so that 
we can be con conservative with the existing Ethereum chain, and so that we can move very quickly um, with Ethereum two and essentially move unencumbered uh, and kind of get to get to the vision as soon as possible. And <clears throat> but but the implications of this is that the systems live uh, in isolation and. Um, and, and, and kind of an economic isolation and and in in isolation of tokens and and things that uh, are definitely big concerns to the user base and and to potential validators and and um, because of that uh, and because of some of the the unknowns in the, in the timelines in the expectation of timelines we're definitely um, revisiting the the bridge proposal and the potential bridge um, so that we can kind of facilitate earlier on uh, this feature to one encourage validation so that if you're a validator you have you have somewhere to go um, if you want to not be a validator um, and to um, just essentially listen to the community because this is something that uh, especially after conversations in dubcon seem to be very important to people um, that said, um, it's still an area of research, um, and it's still um, it still wouldn't happen on, at day zero of phase zero um, because of that. Primarily because of that that security profile, um, I think it would be quite frankly irresponsible to launch phase zero, couple the consensus of the beacon chain to the existing proof of work chain, and facilitate bidirectional transfers on on the initial day of launch. I think I think that there's there's too many moving parts there, and there's just a there's too high of a chance of something going wrong uh, that we have to mend, um, and we don't want that to affect our existing you know chain that has a, a, quite frankly a lot of activity on it. Um, so not day zero, but likely sooner and something that uh, there's still some conversations to be had with the community. There's still some technical things to vet. There's a, there's an E3 search post that Vitalik put out during DevCon that does go through a, a version of what this might look like. Um, and there's a lot of moving parts with respect to uh, timelines and relative timelines. And, depending on how quickly certain things might be done relative to others uh, would affect when maybe this proposal should be done. The nice thing is though, is that to facilitate this bi-directional bridge, you need to have the existing Ethereum chain um, and clients know about uh, ETH2. And once they know about ETH2, um, we could leverage ETH2 to finalize ETH1, which is something that uh, I'm particularly excited about. And at the same time, um, facilitating bidirectional transfers also implies that uh, you know about the state root of ETH2. And so knowing about the state root of ETH2 come phase one could open up some uh, serious gains in, fit in uh, scalability for the existing Ethereum chain by using ETH2 as a data availability layer. So it could enhance certain constructions like that uh, ZK rollup and OVM, like we talked about earlier. So the TLDR is, we, we definitely, we see that this is important to the community. We realize that for a number of reasons, uh, it, it could be worthwhile to actually enable this bridge uh, a lot earlier on than we originally expected. Um, and something that we um, will be definitely uh, proposing specifications and kind of digging deeper into this and giving more information to the community about uh, the proposal.
That's helpful, Danny. Really helpful. And you know, I might be totally off here on the question, so just let me know if I am. But if there's if this bridge lasts for too long, do you think that this could spur two different communities, like the ETH one community, then the ETH two community? I'm just like wondering if like if a bridge persists for too long, you may fracture the community, or if people kind of just think of this as the next evolution of Ethereum. Hmm. Yeah. See, I think the bridge ultimately unifies if, if there was a chance of, of fracturing the community the bridge actually allows a more seamless tie between the two halves of the system um, and so i think it allows a more seamless tie between what might have been the eth1 community and the eth2 community and i think i think it really just keeps it as the ethereum protocol and the ethereum community um, and I, I think the risk really could be if if you open up phase one and you even if you even move towards phase two and there's no there's only a, a single directional transfer into into eth2 uh, from eth1 then I, I think that actually has a much higher risk of potentially fracturing uh, the community and maybe fracturing development effort um, and so this this bridge actually could be uh, unifying um, and and ensure that although there's two chains operating for some amount of time uh, during this uh, this transition to, to ETH2, um, that everything kind of stays unified as a singular protocol. That's helpful. And just going on to the bridge on this, is how does this tie into the state of the deposit contract? Is this totally different or is this similar to the conversation around the bridge? I know you may have alluded to this already, um, but I want to make sure I get it in. The deposit contract allows that single directional transfer of ETH into being a validator on ETH2 from ETH1. Um, and so it's, that's a, that's always, that's probably uh, one direction of the bi-directional bridge. Um, then facilitating transfers back from ETH2 into ETH1 is the other direction. Um, and, and this mechanism, the precise, precisely how this mechanism would happen, uh, still up for debate. You could imagine um, in a fork hot swapping the deposit contract for um, an enhanced deposit contract that had a, a withdrawal function um, that could uh, consume a receipt from ETH2 to pull ETH back out of that deposit contract. But there's a there's a number of ways that you can implement it, and we're, we, we haven't really begun to settle on the optimal there. Um, so, so potentially it, it becomes the mechanism for the bidirectional, but it, it definitely serves as the, the single directional uh, transfer. Gotcha. And thanks for to uh, Trent Van Epps for that question. It's like a community call at this point, Danny. There's so many questions, but that's what I love about <laughs> this community. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's good. Hey, everyone. We'll continue this conversation shortly. But first, a quick word from our amazing sponsors. Are you interested in getting into the cryptocurrency markets, but don't know where to start building your portfolio? We have the answer for you. It's called Copy Trader by eToro. With Copy Trader, you can automatically copy every trade of eToro's top crypto traders at the exact price in real time. No need to study up on markets or develop your own strategies. Simply sign up and copy the trader of your choice. Any profits they make, you do too. With eToro, you get access to the world's most popular cryptocurrencies with transparent trading fees, all in one easy-to-use app. Copy the smart money with eToro. Join now at b.tc slash eToro reaction, linked in the show notes below. I also want to tell you guys about Celsius Network. They're doing a really cool thing trying to revolutionize the way we think about financial services. Basically, they're offering their users up to 10% annual interest on their crypto deposits, and there's no secret to how they're doing it. That 10% comes from them sharing 80% of their profits, rather than the minimal percent normal banks share. 
Celsius is giving users $10 in Bitcoin when they make a deposit of 200 or more in crypto or stablecoins when they use the promo code chain. Celsius is linked in the show notes below. Check them out. Just moving on, um, what's the state of ETH 2.0 clients? There's obviously, I believe, you know, last time I checked, there was nine teams working on ETH 2.0 clients. I know there was a lock-in where you guys all worked on getting interop between all these clients. Um, I mean, I personally think we'll probably end up with, you know, two, three, or four main clients. But, you know, what's the state here? And I'm, I'm sure this kind of plays into test nets as well. Yeah, yeah. So there are seven now. Um, ETH which was a, a project by Dean Eigenman um, uh, to write a client in Swift. I think he's uh, decided to instead focus on building just a validator interface and a validator interface that, that focuses on like mobile and some other cool stuff. So that would be just like, that's essentially like writing a piece of mining software, but not writing geth. Um, and so it can, uh, you know, his, his validation interface might plug into underlying clients. So, so Yeath is gone. Um, and at DevCon, it was announced that the two Java teams, um, Harmony and Artemis are, uh, unifying, which I'm very, very excited about. Um, they're both excellent teams, um, with a different set of strengths. Um, and I think, it's a huge, huge gain for, for both their individual projects and just for the, for the community in general. Um, so we're at, we're at seven now. Um, and the state of things. Yeah, we had that, we had that interop, um, lock-in, uh, which I was quite frankly, a little bit skeptical of going in. I didn't know if it was the right time and I didn't know if, I just didn't know how productive it was going to be to get everyone, um, you know, in a remote location for seven days. Um, and it was, it was awesome. Um, my skepticism was proved wrong. Um, and we had some, it, it was the right time. It, there was a lot of, there was a lot of just little things to work through. Um, certain things like ironing out the networking spec and just getting, getting two pieces of software to talk, you know, it, it, you don't really quite know all of the challenges and all the little things that are going to emerge until you, till you do it. And so have everyone, having everyone there just expedited going through this process of um, ironing out the little things that we needed to do before we move towards larger scale test nets. Um, that's kind of where we stand now is um, clients getting to the point uh, doing a lot of clients right now are, doing larger scale single client test nets, um, private test nets, uh, where they're like, they're taking their clients. Usually they may have had four or 10 nodes on these little test nets and they're, and they're doing much larger test nets, uh, to ensure that they can operate under at least reasonable scale before we move towards, uh, these public test nets. Um, and at the same time, um, I mentioned earlier, we had this subtractive release, on phase zero, where we took out the cross-linking uh, scaffolding, and so the, it's they're hardening hardening their clients, getting them ready for larger test nets, and and doing this um, update to the state transition function uh, from this from this release. Um, in the coming weeks, uh, certainly in the coming months, uh, we're going to be seeing uh, larger and public test nets. I think a number of teams are um, have launched or are going to launch um, individual test nets, ones where at least their single client have the majority of the network. Um, the cool thing about these is that although they might be dominated by 
client A, uh, because client B speaks the same protocol, client B can you know go through the deposit process and and throw a few nodes on there and see how they operate. And so this is these test nets operated by a single client, but that facilitates some multi-client functionality um, are the next step. And at the same time, we're we're beginning to work out the details of what uh, larger public and more orchestrated test nets look like. Um, ones that really are simulating the production context and ones that are focused on getting potential validators um, onboarded and familiar with the software and familiar with the expectation of, of running uh, running these things. Um, and at the same time, figuring out some um, incentivized uh incentivize portions of these test nets, you know, try to break things, uh, for, for certain bounties. Um, so that's, that's what we're going to be seeing in the next couple of months is, uh, some exciting test nets. I mean, I'm very, very excited. Uh, you know, we've been, we've been working on ETH2 certainly since in this current form since summer of 2018. Um, but in different various forms for years. Um, and so getting to the testnet phase and the public testnet phase is incredibly, incredibly exciting. Yeah, that's huge. And it definitely sounds good that you guys are all able to work so well together, you know, in one spot, it's hard to get everybody together, let alone that many people and clients. Um, Danny, for those who may not be as up to speed on clients and, and what they are, what do you think are the top differences between the clients from the teams? Like what are the key takeaways on the differences? Oh, interesting. Um, if it's too technical, no worries. No, but, no. I, I, I won't speak to this too much because I don't want to, I don't want to pick winners. I'd like for them to speak for themselves and I'd like for them to, I'd like for the information that we report about uh, test nets and about and about production in, in, in mainnet, I think will speak worlds to uh, you know which clients are most optimal and, and things like that. But just broadly, some clients are focused more on um, the end user experience. Maybe they have a nice GUI. Um, some clients are very security focused. Some have gone down the rabbit hole for uh, deep optimizations. Um, it can operate under very high load um, and and. You know, some clients are maybe maybe some of their users or uh, potential users are more focused on like enterprise use cases and things like that. Um, and so, go check out. Most of these clients do monthly updates. Uh, they they generally talk about the features and and users and things that they're particularly targeting. Um, so go go. I'll, I'll say at this point at least, go do your own research. Um, there's an, a lot of incredible teams um, and. I expect many of them to do very well uh, come mainnet. Uh, but but you're right. Uh, it, you mentioned that, you know there are many clients. Um, it will be very interesting to see how the distribution falls uh, once mainnet has come out and has been around for a little bit of time. Um, you know some of that will have to do with quite frankly just advertising. You know who can speak to the users, but some of that will also come from data driven metrics. You know like does this client have good uptime? And if it doesn't, and you're a validator, you're going to ditch it real quick and pick another one. Um, so we shall see. It's my hope that no client has over 50% of the network. Um, it'd be really cool if no client had over a third. You know, if we had 
four clients of about 25%, like I'd be, I'd be thrilled. Or even if, even if we had one client, 35%, uh, and then a handful of other clients with a smaller percent, like I, I'd be, I'd be very thrilled. I think if we can construct a reality where we don't have a single client that's over 50% of the network, it, it's just much better for network st- stability, uh, diversity, and ultimately like it, it gives the network a better security profile in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. I couldn't agree more there. And just switching gears a little bit, Danny, or not switching gears, but just summing up here, um, you know, what are your, like, what would you put the probability of phase zero actually launching in January? I mean, I definitely agree with your view that it's better to be subtractive and get out something that you don't have to continually fix later. But mm-hmm. I feel like the goalposts may have moved a little bit though on the date. Okay. Yeah. I Zero probability of January. Um, the January date, um, Justin Drake on my team threw that date out as a suggestion on a public call. I threw out, I think January 3rd or 5th. Um, and it was swooped up by the media as our launch date. Um, it has never been our launch date. Um, but I, I will say I have zero expectation that we're going to launch in January. Um, I have, I have a high expectation that we will launch in Q1 and that's, that's been what I've been trying to communicate. Um, ever since that date kind of has become pervasive. Uh, but I, we're all targeting a Q1 launch. No, that's helpful. I mean, it's better to be all on the same page and, and be kind of pragmatic about it, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we are, uh, we're working as hard as we can um, and we're getting close. Awesome, that's, that's great. And Danny, zooming out a little bit, um, I want to think about kind of the, you know, bullish bearish case for ethereum not on an investment basis just on a value accrual basis and you know dan zeller from vision hill group was a close friend kind of proposed this question i mean what are your thoughts kind of on a value accrual perspective for eth 2.0 moving forward do you think it stands to benefit and grow and capture a lot of value or do you think this is kind of still an open question moving forward um value in in uh in, in use cases, essentially having more applications and more tokens and more things done with it. Yeah, I guess as the ecosystem continues to build out, like, is there a bull case in your mind that value will accrue to Ethereum itself and, and the token itself? Um, I generally will not. Look, I don't know what these things should be valued at. And I don't know. Uh, I don't know what. I don't know what it's going to look like in five years. I know that the existing Ethereum protocol and the existing Ethereum community and developers and users is incredibly valuable and incredibly powerful. And I have every expectation that's going to continue to grow and thrive. Um, and that Ethereum 2.0 is the next phase of that evolution uh, to enable and enhance the existing community and the existing uh, world of applications. Um, so I'm bullish about ethereum um but i won't speak specifically to what a token should be worth no no of course that's that's helpful i wasn't trying to back into price just more on, on the yeah no, i know i know <laughs> yeah, yeah. so danny building on that point i mean a lot of that kind of hinges on um you know the likelihood that all the developers building on top of Ethereum stay there, and I kind of think a lot about this. You know, there's you know 20 new layer ones launching over the next two years, and you know if I had to simplify it, it seems like Ethereum has the community, has the dev mindshare, has all the tools and docs. 
but is trying to move towards better technology. But new layer ones kind of have the technology and they're trying to attract the community. So it's like a lopsided battle here. What are your views on the likelihood that, you know, the developers building on Ethereum stay there and they continue to grow there um, and they don't leave for other layer ones? Yeah, yeah. So I'm, <clears throat> I am very confident that the growth rate will far exceed the the leave rate. Um, people are going to experiment. People are, you know, developers love playing with all sorts of tools um, and all sorts of, of technologies and things. And, and I fully expect to be uh, to see movement and migrations and things like that. But I, I also fully expect the just based off of my understanding of the community and what I see um, in the real world is that the gra- the growth rate will probably far exceed that that leave rate. And I I it's gonna be it's gonna be hard uh, for new chains. I I I'm sure some of them are gonna do well, and I'm sure a lot of them like the sticking point is gonna be getting user and getting developer adoption. Um, you know, one of the this these things kind of like compound in their network effects. Um, the more things and more applications that are building on something, the more value and the more interesting and exciting it is to build on it. Um, the more things that you can do and, and, and kind of construct. And so, um, I fully expect that uh, network effect to to continue to amplify. For sure, and. Danny, I'm kind of of the same opinion that Ethereum's network effects, composability, developer mindshare is a huge, huge moat. Um, But I think a lot of people outside of crypto really have trouble quantifying that, especially when they're approached with, you know, a slide deck that, you know, has magical new technology that Ethereum may not have yet or, or may not even need, to be honest. You know, if you had to pick something that you think would, you know, let's say be disaster, let's think about disaster scenarios like, what is something in your mind that would lead developers to leave Ethereum? Do you think it would be delays in ETH2 or do you think it would just be maybe the vision not playing out? I'm just trying to like nitpick where things could um, go wrong. Sure. I mean, it might be if we fail to deliver, you know, or if we have some like major technical hiccups, um, you could certainly see issues arising. But I, again, you mentioned you mentioned slide decks. That's going to be compelling to an investor, uh, but that's not why developers build on something. That's not why developers use technology. They don't. They don't care about slide decks. Um, they care about tools. They care about infrastructure. They care about the interesting things that they can build and do, and the users that they can reach. Um, and and Ethereum, regardless of Ethereum 2.0, um, has that and has that very strongly. And I and I fully expect. Um, with some of the the new layer two constructions that are in the works um, for even in the absence of ethereum 2.0 existing for many years if that if that were in a you know if everyone working on ethereum 2.0 stopped working on ethereum 2.0 and uh, it didn't ship for 10 years I think that the the amount of what things that you can do and the incredible things that you can do on the existing Ethereum protocol um, will just continue to compound regardless yeah that's huge I definitely agree there um, for sure and Danny just zooming out I mean how do you personally feel about where you guys are at now I mean you've been here for a long time you've been through a lot of transitions on Ethereum do you feel like you guys are on the verge of really pushing ahead with ETH 2.0 right now or do you kind of feel like you're trying to drag people to the finish line. Like what's your internal feeling about this transition versus past transitions? Um, 
there's everyone that's working on it is generally ex- extremely excited. Um, and we are at the point where there's not fundamental research to figure out. It's, it's primarily an engineering project. Um, and the people that are driving that are very skilled, very motivated teams. Um, so I, I don't feel like we're dragging, dragging anyone, um, with respect to the, uh, community. I think people are simultaneously excited and also just skeptical and a little bit, um, not afraid, but just concerned about the unknowns. Um, and so the, it's our job and our mission to, um, as we, you know, phase zero, phase zero is essentially, it has one set of users as those are validators. We need to communicate and educate validators to be able to use the system well. Um, but, but come phase one and come phase two, it's really when we need to welcome in, uh, the normal or the, the everyday developers and everyday, everyday users. Um, and so certainly a part of our mission come next year is to better educate, better inform, um, and, and ensure that the developer experience and the user experience moving through this transition, uh, is optimal. I love that. That's a great uh, summation. Danny, just closing out, just thinking of one more question here. Um, there's, like you said, a lot of layer twos going on, and there's some really excellent teams there, right? Like Connects and Scale and others. Um, there's also Plasma Research Groups and you know everything going on there. Do you think that we still need a lot of those teams, or, or will they play a role? Because it sounds like with sharding at the base layer and you know some optimistic roll-up talk that's been going around recently, I don't know like where those teams exactly fit in um, with all of with optimistic rollups and sharding at the base layer for scale. Yeah, well, and it's, um, it's hard to predict, you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, really good layer two teams and really good layer two technologies that are being experimented with, um, and being brought to production. Um, and I fully expect in Ethereum 2.0 for layer two to have, um, like a very firm place in that world. Um, and I, I, I won't, I don't think we've gotten to the point where just because we have a new shiny thing that we've deprecated uh, any of the, the existing uh, technologies. And so um, it's the nice thing about layer two is that it can kind of continue to grow and evolve and be experimented with regardless of, uh, of layer one. And I, I just, I fully expect to see that um, continue in the future. That's awesome. And Danny, one last question for you. I'm, it's kind of hard for me to put this into words, but I feel like Ethereum is has a playground where developers are building radically new applications that we didn't have before, right? Like everything on DeFi with prediction markets and synthetics yeah, and yeah. things like that. But other protocols are really just trying to like decentralize Web2 apps. Um, do you view this as a moat for Ethereum? Because I kind of do, but it's also hard to like describe and talk about. Um. To a certain extent, for sure. I mean, especially on the DeFi side, a lot of that, uh, you have this kind of like compounding effect of the more tools and, and protocols that exist, the more that you can make interesting things and kind of like compound or do interesting things with the value constructions. Um, and so I think that it's, it's hard to bootstrap that. Um, I, I'm sure there will be others that are successful at bootstrapping that, but, but again, it's, it's kind of the, the, some of those DeFi applications, like 
you need to have some value there to kind of like get the whole thing moving. Um, and so I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a moat just, but it's, but it's, it's going to be tough to replicate. Um, not impossible, but, but tough to replicate. And, uh, you know, if, if there's 20 new chains, um, that have smart contract capabilities, I seriously doubt that 20 can, can, can bootstrapped a, uh, a successful like DeFi ecosystem. For sure. And Danny, last question. When the bulk of Ethereum 2.0 is out of the way, where are you going on vacation and why? Uh, uh, I don't know. That's a, that's a really good question. Um, maybe <laughs> the first thing that comes to mind is a um, small island off the coast of Louisiana called Grand Isle, where literally nothing happens. Um, so maybe I'll, maybe I'll head down there. I, I hope that's a diversion because now people might come looking for you after all this. <laughs> <laughs> Danny, thanks so much for hopping on. Um, where can people follow you and learn more about um, your Ethereum quick update posts, which I think are excellent? Yeah, cool. I, I'm on Twitter at Danny Ryan. Um, I recently started a weekly update on the Ethereum blog. That's blog.ethereum.org uh, called ETH2 Quick Update, um, where I will... The most uh, interesting things that I think the community should know about, um, I'll write about each week. Um, it's short and it's sweet. Um, other than that, I'm on uh, my main other network is uh, GitHub. I'm DJRTWO. Check it out. Check it out. Love that. Danny, thanks so much for your time and, and coming on. Mm-hmm. Appreciate it having me. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you can go to iTunes and hit subscribe to the Chain Reaction Podcast, it'll go a long way in helping us reach new listeners and help support the show. Thanks again.